first from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 3. Acts 3, verses 11 through 26. I see I had the passages in reverse order in the bulletin, so don't be confused. It's Acts 3 first, and then we'll get to Romans. This is Peter speaking to his fellow Jews right after they healed a lame beggar, and the Jews immediately sought conflict with them. So while he, that is, that that beggar, clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us, as though by our power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he, dis- when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead." To this we are witnesses, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive, until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers, You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken, from Samuel and those who came after him, also proclaimed these days, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed." God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So far from Acts 3, now let's turn to Romans chapter 12. There too there is a small discrepancy. I'd like to read from chapter 12, verse 1, all the way through chapter 21. So Romans 12, beginning at verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to, what is, to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So far. As we reflect on these things, let's sing from Psalm 40, stanzas 3. Every Sunday afternoon, we return again to the basics of the Christian and the Reformed faith to study what Scripture teaches. This afternoon, we find ourselves in Lord's Day 49 of the Heidelberg Catechism, which is our guide. Lord's Day 49, concerning the third petition of the Lord's Prayer. You find that on page 562 of your books of praise. And the question there is, what is the third petition? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is, grant that we and all men may deny our own will, and without any murmuring, obey your will, for it alone is good. Grant also that everyone may carry out the duties of his office and calling as willingly and faithfully as the angels in heaven. So far. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, how often do you pray to God, your will 
be done. And I don't just mean how often do you recite those words as part of the Lord's prayer or perhaps as sort of an attachment at at the end of your prayer or any given request. No, I mean, how often do you pray earnestly from the heart, O God, grant that your will would be done here on earth by me, by everyone, as it's done in heaven? How often is that prayer on the forefront of your minds? This is what the Lord Jesus taught us to pray And if we reflect honestly on our prayer lives, I think most of us would agree that's something that we need to be taught to pray. It isn't something that comes naturally to us. It isn't something that we often pray from the heart. It just isn't as much a priority in our lives as it ought to be. So this afternoon, let's give our attention to this petition and to what the Lord Jesus taught us about this petition so that it would again become a priority for us. We need to study this. It needs to start mattering to us again. To do that, we're going to look at what the Lord Jesus taught us about this petition right here in the context of Matthew 6, where he gives the Lord's Prayer, and also what we learn from other parts of Scripture, including Acts 3 and Romans 12. So the message this afternoon, then, is this. Christ teaches us to pray for a global reformation. We'll, take a, we'll first take a few minutes then to understand what that means, what this petition means, where that theme comes from. And then we're going to pick up on several parts of the Sermon on the Mount where Christ teaches this to understand why this ought to be a priority for us. And then finally, we'll also spend a few minutes at the end looking at what this reformation looks like that we ought to be praying for, what it looks like in our own individual lives. So that's where we're going this afternoon. Let me first begin by explaining what this petition means. Maybe this will help you to understand why I begin this sermon with a note of concern about our prayer lives, including my own. First of all, there's a misconception that needs to be cleared up in order to understand this. You see, sometimes when we, when we pray this prayer that God's will would be done, we refer to his, his, what we call his secret will, his plans, his intentions. So we, we say things like, Oh God, grant that this brother or sister would receive healing, and yet your will be done. Or grant that I would receive this job that I'm hoping for, and yet not my will, but yours be done. And there's nothing wrong with with that kind of prayer. It's good to submit our prayers to the will of God, to express our trust also that his plan is best. That's what the Lord Jesus himself did. If you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane when he cried out, oh God, take this cup from me if at all possible, and yet not my will, but yours be done. So it's good that that attitude is there in our prayers. And it should be there in our speech as well when we discuss our plans and our future. It's good that we remain humble. We always remember to say, Lord willing, or if God permits, then we will do such and such. But that is not what this petition is all about in the Lord's Prayer. And it's important to recognize that. Jesus is not teaching us to pray, Father, grant that your secret plan would be carried out perfectly. How do we know that? Well, we know that because of how he finishes the sentence. He says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
In other words, God's will, in the sense that Jesus means it, is not right now being carried out on earth the way that it is in heaven. So he's clearly not talking about God's secret plans because God always works them out perfectly on earth and in heaven. Instead, the Lord Jesus is talking about God's will in a different sense. It's what theologians call his revealed will or what God desires that we would do. It's the things that he has told us are pleasing to him. So there's what God intends to accomplish on the one hand, his secret will, and then there's what God has commanded us to do on the other hand. And both of these are called God's will in Scripture, but it's good to recognize the difference between those, those two senses of God's will. God's commandments are not yet carried out perfectly here on earth, and that's what the Lord Jesus is telling us to pray for. That's what this prayer is all about. So Jesus is teaching us to pray, God, grant that here on earth people would do what pleases you, that people would obey you, that what you desire would be done. You can see then how how this petition is then related to the rest of the Lord's Prayer that he taught us. The first petition gets at the heart of what ought to be, at least at the heart of every Christian, the highest concern of every Christian. God, may your name be hallowed. That should be the deepest desire of every Christian. May God, who is so much more worthy of respect than anything or anyone on earth, and even more than I can fathom, may his name be lifted up and honored and respected by all people everywhere, because it's fitting and right that he be so worshipped and adored. He deserves that kind of praise. That's our highest concern, the first petition that the Lord taught us. That's the heart cry of every Christian. And then following right on the heels of that is the second petition, the desire to see God's rule extended throughout the world, to see people bowing before him, to see our own lives and homes in submission to him, to see his justice, his righteousness reigning over us. That's the second petition. So you can see in in these petitions how the Lord teaches us to reorient our focus. Isn't it true that more often than not, our prayers are often about our own lives, our own concerns, our own wants. And the Lord Jesus tells us, yes, those are coming later in the prayer. But first, stop and consider what you're here for. Consider what you were created for. He says elsewhere that the body wasn't created for food. He invites us then to consider the much bigger picture, to look beyond ourselves because God's name and God's kingdom and God's will are far more worthy causes to live for than our own mini kingdoms and our own needs and wants. So he invites us before we get into the nitty-gritty detail of, of our own lives to focus on the big picture and I would encourage you also then congregation to do that before you, you get into the details of your life, to focus on the big picture as Christ himself calls us to do. There will be time to pray for those little details, and Christ encourages us to do that. But let's not let those things overshadow our purpose for being here. Let's be encouraged 
by the Lord Jesus' instruction to put God's concerns on the foremost of our minds. So much of Scripture is concerned with what God is doing, how God is redeeming this world. And we should be concerned with that also in our prayers. And we would, in fact, be encouraged and even lifted up, especially in the trials of life, if we would follow the Lord's instruction on this point. If we would leave ourselves and our concerns aside at the beginning of every prayer and focus first, again, on God's concerns, on his kingdom and his purposes. So then you can see how this third petition, God, your will be done, how it's related to the rest of the prayer that Jesus taught us. Our first concern is that his name would be lifted up and hallowed. Our second prayer is that God's rule would extend over all people. And, our, and this petition is that his righteousness would prevail, that people would do what he wills. It comes right alongside the second, the second petition with his kingdom being extended. Grant that everywhere people would obey your will with gladness, just as the angels do in heaven. And you can hopefully see then also why we ought to consider this subject with a note of concern about our own prayer lives, because the truth is, that isn't often a high, a high concern, a priority in our prayers. How often is the doing of God's will by ourselves or by others a foremost concern on our minds? How often do we begin our days with that first on our minds? See, more often than not, our prayers are about our wills, our wants. And in fact, often we, we throw this petition, your will be done, at the end of the prayer because we know that it ought to be on our minds. And yet we also recognize that more often than not, it isn't the way it should be. How often do we stop and think about what God desires? How often do we make it an intentional thing to obey the will of God? What would it actually look like in our lives if, if the will of God was a priority? How often does the will of God break into our lives, challenge our own wills, and actually succeed in reforming our lives? That's what this petition is all about. And we can see why the Lord Jesus put it towards the beginning of the prayer. See, when the Lord Jesus teaches us how to pray, it, it isn't only so that our prayers would affect God's actions, though Scripture teaches that they do, that he acts on our prayers. But the Lord Jesus also teaches us to pray this way in order to change the way that we ourselves think, to, cha to change the way that we feel, to change the way that things matter to us and the priority in which things matter to us. We need to pray this prayer because the carrying out of God's will needs to start being foremost on our minds. It needs to start affecting everything else that we do. So Christ teaches us and also invites us to start focusing on God's priorities for our own purpose in life and also for our encouragement and our joy. Then even when we suffer, our minds may be caught up in God's purposes so that our suffering doesn't bear us down into the, the dark corners of life, but instead that we may be lifted up even in the midst of trials to see what we were created for. And then we can see our short earthly suffering also in perspective. 
then we think if God would use our trials to further his kingdom, to further his righteousness, then we still rejoice with him and his people. Christ himself taught us right in Matthew 6, right after he taught us the Lord's Prayer, he also taught us, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after those things. And your Heavenly Father knows that you need them all, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. That's the perspective and the priority that he wants us to have. And you can see the second and the third petitions in there. Seek first his kingdom, second petition, and his righteousness, third petition. They go hand in hand. And then you can also see how this prayer, it fits in with Jesus' larger teaching ministry. His entire teaching ministry, it's summarized right at the beginning in Matthew 4, where it says that then Jesus came preaching, repent, For the kingdom of God is at hand. That's the context of this prayer as well. If the kingdom is at hand, well then how shall we live as those being confronted by that kingdom or as those who have repented and are now sons and daughters of that kingdom? And in fact, now that Christ is ascended and reigning on high, the kingdom isn't only at hand, the kingdom is already breaking into this world. That makes this message, this prayer, all the more relevant. Since the kingdom of God is here, and since it is extending into this world, we, for our part, can't live any longer as Gentiles do, but as sons and daughters of the kingdom, with our hearts and minds reoriented reoriented and focused on his kingdom and his righteousness. That's also then why this is such an urgent prayer, isn't it? That the Lord Jesus teaches us the kingdom of God is at hand. The gospel is going out into the world and with it, God is judging the thoughts and lives of all men and women and testing our motives, which means there is an urgent need for reformation. What will become of our country? What will become of the 7 billion people on this planet if there is not a dramatic repentance and conversion to God and to his righteousness? If you think about it, this prayer that the Lord Jesus teaches us is really not all that different from the message that Jonah had for the city of Nineveh. The day of judgment is at hand. May God's will be done, lest this city burn with the rest. And so this prayer needs to be on the hearts and minds of God's people. It needs to be there, first of all, for the sake of our own lives, which need to be converted to the will of God. If we are children of the kingdom, then we with the kingdom must reform. Our own hearts need to be changed at that that deep level of motives, where our primary concern needs to change from being our wants and our desires and our little kingdoms that we set up for ourselves to... His kingdom, His righteousness, His name, His honor. And then that needs to take shape in our individual lives and homes, wherever God has given us jurisdiction. It's as Peter says in in 1 Peter 4, judgment will begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those among us who do not obey the gospel? If we recognize that the kingdom of God is at hand, this prayer will become foremost on our minds. 
Grant, O God, that your will would be done here in my life and here in my home and wherever else I can have influence. And then if we recognize that the kingdom of God is at hand, this should be our prayer for the whole world that we live in. How terrible the judgment will be for those who continue to chase after their own wills, despising the will of the creator and judge of the earth. So that's the, that's the context in which we pray this prayer. That's what Christ wants to be on our minds as we pray this prayer. We pray for God's will to be done because all around us in the kingdom of Satan and darkness, we see his will being despised and judgment is coming quickly. So we pray, oh God, grant that your will would be done here in this city and throughout this earth as it's done in heaven. And brothers and sisters, it's good to recognize that is precisely what Christ came for, to see the will of God be done, to bring an end to the kingdom of darkness, and to convert people to God's ways so that God's will would begin to be done. That's the point that Paul makes in Acts 3 when he's speaking to his, when when Peter, Peter rather, not Paul, that Peter makes when he's speaking to his fellow Jews in Jerusalem, he tells them in verse 26, God raised up his servant Jesus and sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from his wickedness. That's why Christ came, to turn each one of you from his wickedness. He tells them, you yourselves crucified the Christ, but now repent before it's too late, because God is bringing about a time for the restoration of all things. And God has sent the prophet that he spoke about long ago through Moses, who would turn people back to himself, through whom all the nations would be blessed. That's Peter's message to his fellow Jews. It's God's mission to see to it that his kingdom would be established, that his will would be done on earth. And Christ came specifically for that purpose. Let's make sure we understand then how this works. How did Christ's coming cause God's will to be done on earth? How is it causing his will to be done here? That's Peter's message to his fellow Jews, but how does it work? How does Christ's coming lead to global reformation that we're praying for? Well, it happens through the gospel, and you can see that in Peter's message, especially in verses 19 and 20 of Acts 3, where he says, Repent, therefore, and turn back, so that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing, or you could also translate that renewal, may come from the presence of the Lord. In other words, because of Christ, there's now an opportunity for people everywhere to repent, for people to turn. They were once enslaved to darkness, enslaved to disobeying the will of God and obeying the will of their father Satan. But now Christ has come. Now there is opportunity for repentance. See, as long as people remain strangers to God and even enemies of God, they will never have any desire to do the will of God. No enemy has the desire to do the will. No person has the desire to do the will of their enemy. Our sin and our guilt was Satan's weapon to keep us from doing God's will. That's how sin reigned over us, as Scripture says. But through Christ, now we're restored to God. 
For us who turn to Christ, now our debt is paid. Our debt doesn't stand against us, condemning us and making us his enemies. And that means now, as the author to Hebrews says, we can draw near to him in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean by his blood. So what's the connection then between Christ's coming and us beginning to do the will of God? Well, it's this. Now that we've been brought near to Christ because of him, we can begin to do the will of God. God is our Father now. He's not our enemy any longer. We've drawn near to Him. We're not far away from Him. We know that He accepts us, and He even rewards our labors because of Christ. So we don't have to work in a panic, hoping to meet His standards, but instead we may work with the joy of knowing that He's already accepted us. It's why, Peter, or why Paul says in Ephesians 2, verse 10, that we were saved for good works. We are creation in Christ, created for good works. That's why Christ came to save us, ultimately for the glory of God, and subservient to that, so that each of us would begin to do God's will. And you can also see that at work in the passage that we read from Romans 12. In all of chapters 11, or 1 through 11, Paul explains the gospel and all the glories of the gospel, the amazing grace of God to the church in Rome. And then in, verse 12, in chapter 12, verse 1, he says to them, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In other words, Paul's, Paul's appeal to the Romans to worship God with their lives is based on the mercies of God. It's only because of God's mercy and God's grace toward us that we can begin to do the will of God, that we actually have a desire to do the will of God. So this world that we pray for a global reformation in this world, it will never happen without the gospel. As long as people remain stuck in the kingdom of darkness, in the kingdom of Satan, they remain without God and without hope in the world. So they will never begin to do God's will. They won't even begin to desire to do God's will. It's only because of the mercy of God toward us that we have opportunity to repent, to turn from our sins, and to live for him without fear of judgment or failure. So that's then the, the basis for this petition that the Lord Jesus taught us to pray, that the kingdom of God would come and the will of God would begin to, to be done because of the work that he would accomplish on the cross. He taught us to pray for these things, and he himself embodied that prayer by himself living for these things, coming to earth so that the kingdom of God would come, coming to earth to save sinners so that the will of God would be done. It's what he lived, and what it's, it's what he died for. And to that end, he himself then came seeking first God's kingdom and God's righteousness. He lived these petitions in his life. It's like he told his disciples once in John 4, he says, My food is to do the will of my Father, or, or the will of him who sent me, and to accomplish his work. It was Christ's food, and he wants to teach us, make this also your food to do the will of God. Let that be your passion. Let that be what drives you day to day. And then by teaching us this prayer, it's what he calls us to live for as well. 
He places this prayer right towards the beginning, this petition right towards the beginning of our prayer to to show us that he wants us to make the will of God our highest concern before even our daily bread. In fact, all of the things that we pray for, our daily bread, the forgiveness of our sins, strength to fight against temptation, all of those things are meant to serve this goal of doing God's will, of building his kingdom, and ultimately of lifting up and honoring his name. We pray for those things in order that we may serve him. So then finally, what is this this reformation that we're praying for? What does that look like? in our own day-to-day lives. Well, it begins at the heart level. You see that in, in Romans 12. It begins with each of us, now that we've been reconciled to God because of Christ, having the will of God as first on our minds, waking up with our first desire to make this day a day in which we do the will of God. And with that desire also being strong enough and and powerful enough to even overcome our own wills, which, if we're honest, are often contradictory, contrary to God's will. That's why the Catechism also says that this petition is a request that we would renounce our own wills so that we would begin to do His will. It's not that we shouldn't have desires anymore, but that serving ourselves shouldn't be our heart's desire. Instead, we should find even greater pleasure, even greater purpose in serving our Father. So we renounce our own wills as a priority in our lives and instead live to do His will. That also means then trusting that God's will is best. It's not always going to be obvious to us that God's will for us is best. When our own desires are foremost on our minds, then sometimes sinning against His will is going to seem advantageous. It's often going to be difficult to see how obeying His will could possibly turn out for our good. There's going to be times when we think it might be better to suspend our obedience to God in order to get something done, and then afterwards we find our way back to Him somehow. So this prayer then, it's also a prayer that God would transform our minds and our hearts to make his will our delight and to teach us to trust that his will really is what's best for our lives. It's better not only for his glory, but it's also better for our joy. That isn't always going to be obvious, but it is true. That's why Paul calls us in Romans 12 to seek the renewing of our minds. So then, with that as our heart's desire, what does this reformation look like on the ground? What does it look like in our day-to-day lives? It's good to reflect on that, because unless we know what God's will is, we still won't be able to do it, even if it is our heart's desire. That's why Paul says in Romans 12 that once we have our, right, our minds renewed, we may strive to discern the will of God, to discern what's good and acceptable and perfect. And then all the rest of Romans 12, in fact, even the rest of the book of Romans, is Paul elaborating on what that life looks like in practice and hands-on. See, the book of Romans, it has some of the weightiest theology that you'll ever find in, the, in all of the New Testament, but it also has some of the most practical, down-to-earth counsel and advice. We read some of that earlier from Romans 12. What does the will of God look like that we're praying for? What is God's desire for us? Well, it looks like each of us walking in humility, 
not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to. It looks like each of us using the gifts that God has given us to honor Him, to serve His church, to serve the world. It looks like genuine love. It looks like us outdoing one another and showing honor to each other. It looks like zeal for the Lord, especially among the young people to whom God has given youth and strength. It looks like rejoicing in hope, even though we suffer in this life. It looks like being patient in tribulation. It looks like being constant in prayer, giving God the glory by demonstrating our dependence on Him and on His grace. It looks like contributing to the needs of the saints, or hospitality, opening our homes, using our homes as a place where we can bless one another or bless other people that God brings into our lives. And this list goes on and on. You can notice I've only begun to read through Romans 12. And all of these chapters from Romans 12 to at least Romans 15, they serve the renewal of our minds to help us discern what is God's will for us. And then if we search through A text like this, if we read through this, desiring to be taught and instructed by God, then God will certainly bless that, and he will give us the discernment and the direction that we need. So though we may have forgotten to pray this prayer as we ought to pray it, it might not have had the priority in our lives that it ought to have had, let us be encouraged to follow Christ's calling and and his example as well, to seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness, because we trust that he will add to those whatever else we need. Let us make it our first priority to see how we can serve him, and if necessary, then let us also renounce our own wills in order to follow his will, because we trust, we believe, that his will alone is good. Amen. Let's respond to God's word by singing together from Psalm 119, stanzas 52 through 54.